The other um, title for this talk is really about making algorithmic justice or injustice transparent. Um, and I came to this topic, interestingly enough, as a scholar who's looked at risk assessment um, in the very formal sense within the context of criminal justice decision making and how risk assessment gets used to make predictions about all kinds of different things, whether it's security placements in prisons or whether it's predictions about recidivism and around sentencing, whether you attribute somebody to be a high risk, medium risk, or low risk, and how that affects how we manage or govern individuals within the criminal justice system. Um, and I find that that concept of risk or risk-based thinking um, penetrates all the way through our criminal justice system. It also penetrates in many areas of law, um, and some of you will know these, this a little bit better than I do in terms of law, but also in many different areas of law. So there's constantly contexts where we're using risk logics to make decisions about people or things or the allocation of resources. And about, I guess, 25 years ago now, when risk assessment, in particular psychology-based risk assessment, became popular, in criminal justice, and some of it is an artifact of, of Canada, because a lot of the well-known popular risk assessments that are used were actually invented here in Canada. The argument for the use of those, or the integration of risk assessment and decision-making in criminal justice, whether it's in policing, courts, or corrections, was always to make things more fair, um, or to enhance efficiency in decision-making and to be empirically based in that decision making and thus implicitly more accurate um, in how we make decisions or how we make predictions. And so that way of thinking became very much embedded in the way in which the criminal justice system responds to and manages both crime and people who are accused of committing crimes. It also helps to not only predict uh, crime and what people will do, but it's also uh, associated with prevention and it gets used on wider scales around security risks um, and international security issues around terrorism and all those types of issues that we're all particularly concerned about. So because criminal justice has always been very inclined to risk assessment and very, very attached to the concept of risk and assessing risk over the last 20 years, they've grown up this way and think that they're getting better and better and better at the prediction, we see that the system is very much conducive to big data and big data thinking. It's very familiar with the idea of algorithms because risk assessments are basically algorithms. Um, and so when we see big data analytics coming onto the scene, that is very easily and quickly embraced by a number of different criminal justice players. And so what we see now in the current context and is that many criminal justice agencies internationally in Canada and the US, Canada's a little bit slower on the uptake for this stuff, but um, predominantly in the US and in Canada, we have criminal justice agencies working with computer scientists, software engineers, and private companies that are skilled in data analytics. One example of this is um, there's a big data brokerage companies that now are working with police stations to do background checks. We have some police stations in Halifax, Calgary, and other places who are starting to look at software similar to PredPol, which is a predictive policing algorithm, which I'll speak a little bit about now. So the point about that is that it's helping agencies sort through masses amount of information. It's helping agencies, presumably, to become more efficient. Um, you see it in financial crime areas because it helps go through lots of financial transactions really, really quickly. 
Um, and it also helps systems become more sophisticated in their use of data. And at the same time, quite independently from data analytics, what you see in intelligence is the uptake of things like facial recognition, um, GPS tracking, license plate reading, um, different meanings of electronic monitoring. Like years and years ago, when I first came across electronic monitoring, and this will date me, but like 25 years ago, when I worked in an institution where it was being implemented, I used to say to students when I lectured, well, it's not like you can look at a map and sort of track where somebody is. It was this clunky device that got connected to a telephone and then, you know, if it sent a signal across the telephone line and it kind of knew that you were there. Now it's actually very different. The capacities are there to kind of look at a screen and digitally monitor where people are. The level and extent to which that's being used is differential across countries and across different places. And when you think of that kind of technology with facial software, license plate, license plate readers, red light cameras that are collecting information, you can start to collect a massive amount of information about people um, and where they are geographically. <coughs> in addition to that, as you all know, because you're interested in AI and you're also of a generation that likes smartphones and a number of other devices and we're all quite attached to them, is that all of those devices that we use and all the places that we go online and all the things we engage in leave digital traces. Um, and they leave digital traces. Sometimes they're directly attached to us, sometimes they aren't attached to us. Some of it's contingent on privacy settings. But all of that is to say that the capacity is there to be able to get lots of information about individuals, to be able to track individuals in terms of where they are, and also the ability to aggregate that information. And when people start opting into things like Uber or GPSs or online shopping or different types of things, even more digital information becomes available to them. So we have a vast economy of data and there's very big data banks that are out there. And historically those things used to be very siloed and they used to be quite proprietary and they might be independent. So if you think, for example, about credit checking, credit checking seemed to happen over here criminal record checking happened over here, and different forms of that all are now coming together to be able to create large databases. So when we start to think about um, this idea of risk, big data, and social justice, what I'm interested in doing is try to figure out how big data has invigorated and altered the criminal justice's act around smart, data-driven, and evidence-based solutions. And it's also opened the door for individuals and private companies with a range of technical expertise um, to offer algorithmically based solutions for organizations such as predictive policing or the criminal record checking. And there's also this presumption that being technological developments, that they're actually efficiently enhancing safety, they're analyzing data, and they're limiting error. Um, and that all becomes quite questionable. And interestingly enough, this is something that um, many scholars have looked into and many people have started to think about, okay, we've got all these new technologies, what does it actually mean for us? People like David Lines and a number of different people who are interested in surveillance and security will talk about how this avalanche of data, which Ian Hacking talks about an avalanche of data, has led to new techniques of surveillance, new ways of policing populations, new ways of regulating populations, and it's sort of like a big brother on steroids, if you like. Um, and I think all of that is very interesting, and it's a very interesting vein of scholarship, and it's a really interesting thing to think about. Um, 
but on a certain level, I'm a little bit less interested in that as I am interested in thinking about how risk and the way we think about risk is changing and what are some of not just the negative ways in which this kind of technology impacts us and the policing of citizens, but what are some of the proactive and productive um, things that can come out of these types of technologies. Um, so this is just another couple of examples. So I'll go back here for one second. So what you're seeing here is an example of a predictive policing algorithm. And if any of you were here, was anyone here earlier in the year when there was a fellow here talking about his algorithms that could track people and police people? Okay, this is just a little bit more of a sophisticated or variation, I won't say sophisticated, but variation on that. And this is something that's used in California in a lot of jurisdictions. It's called PredPol, predictive policing algorithms. Are people familiar with this? Okay, some are, some are. Okay, so basically what these algorithms do here, is that they will take all these kinds of instances or events and they will triangulate all types of information and they work almost like a, if you watch a weather map and you can see how weather is moving um, across a geographical region, it's almost like a heat map of crime in real time. And this is what the developers will argue is that what you see here is crime in real time. And so if you're looking up here, you go from what the police will call tactical ambiguity about well, we think we're going to deploy resources to these particular areas of a community or a city or a place to tactical clarity, where it's argued by the developers that you can get down to about 200 square meters of where um, you might be able to find crime occurring. Now, it can't predict who will commit the crime or what type of crime it will be, but it does claim to be able to give you precision. And you can see why police then find this to be functionally useful in terms of the deployment of resources. Um, you can also see why it can actually lead to a little bit of over, or to a little or a lot of over-policing of particular areas or particular neighborhoods. Um, another technology that feeds into this is the development of body cameras on police. Um, so body cameras are picking up information constantly. Um, and where is that information going? And what are the capacities of that information? So if you start to think about that with the ability to link it to criminal record databases, to be able to link it to suspicious people databases or in the context of a very relevant Canadian debate, carding databases, or if you start to think about it, um, then linked up to facial recognition software, you've got very real-time identification of individuals as suspects. Um, rightly or wrongly, um, can, the capacity is now increasingly there for these kinds of technologies to come on the scene. And what's interesting about them is that they're changing the way in which we think about policing. Um, now, it's not just policing um, that this happens to. It also happens in custody and prisons in interesting ways that you wouldn't think about. So in the United States, there's a company that's sort of known as like the apple of the criminal justice system. And what it's doing is rolling out internet-capable tablets for prisoners um, within institutions. And at first, if you're so inclined, you could say, well, this is really great because now you can have real-time access to family members, you can speak to people, you can write letters, you can FaceTime, you can do various things, probably not FaceTime because I'm sure that would be a security risk. But what it also allows for is to say, well, you could go in cell and you could do self-learning. So you could link into this classroom, you could do your treatment modules, you could do all that sort of work through a tablet or through the interface of a tablet. Um, and many of the ways 
that you might use, you know, things like Quirkus and other stuff like that, you can now do this in an institutional context. Um, again, when you think about data traces and big data, and you think about letter writing, now you have an inventory of all the letters and all the people to whom people have written to, uh, which becomes a searchable database. What can you do with that? Um, and so there's a lot of questions, not just that, okay, these are great technologies, they enhance efficiencies, but what are the upsides and the downsides of these technologies, and what can they be married with? And when you do marry them with other things, um, what are the implications of that? So all of these technologies, and there's many, and I'm sure you could give me lots of examples from different places of these things, including some really interesting ones on protection and safety that you might see in places like Brazil, where you have something like a Waze map, um, but it will track shootings or difficult outbursts in neighborhoods, and you can use it to navigate your route home. It'll say your route home on the subway versus the highway versus through the suburban area is better or worse, depending on where there's an event occurring. Um, very useful for personal safety issues, but also collecting lots of information that presumably gets fed into other kinds of capacities. And so this avalanche of information, which is something that Hacking talked about, or a deluge of information, is something that in some ways characterizes big data. Um, and big data techniques um, allow us to sort of do different things with that data and with that information than we could do before. So just as I move on, I want to do a little bit of just clarifying what I'm talking about. So different people have different meanings of big data um, when you're moving through it. And so for me, this term big data is exceptionally vague and elusive, and it can be really all-encompassing. Um, so as I try to work through it in a paper that some of you may or may not have read, I try to get some precision um, to what I mean when I talk about big data. So when I'm talking about big data, um, I'm trying to think about the following ideas. So the concept here is I use it for understanding how visions of contemporary data are incorporated into the imagining of life and the production of truths and the liminal work um, that's contained in the social world. So I'm using it as a concept of like just information that is out there, all kinds, all sorts of information, um, without necessarily qualifying what that information is. And when I talk about big data techniques, I'm looking at processes by which these enormous amounts of information about people, whether they're in formal databases that are produced through initiatives like open government or transparency in government, whether they're police record databases, credit bases, immigration databases, child welfare databases, court records, any of those types of things, trails on dating sites, information about where you shop, all of that. I'm looking at how those disparate pieces of information are populated into data sets and how they then become used in predictive analytics and algorithms. Um, and they're all disconnected from the multiplicity of sources from which they came from. So once they start getting into these data sets, they become disconnected from where they were originally collected and the meaning for which they were originally collected and they're put into a new form, and it's a usable form. So this leads me to sort of questions of how is big data and AI and machine learning, which are techniques, machine learning being and AI being techniques that are using some of this data, shifting organizational risk practices and challenging social science methods of assessing risk and our knowledge about risk. And so how is that moving? And so based on that, what I want to argue, um, 
automatically click on the name. Um, is a couple things. First, I want to argue that algorithmic risk of big data is different from actuarial risk techniques that are already in use in many criminal justice sectors. And to be even more precise about that, I want to talk about how big data risk techniques are different from psychologically informed risk techniques, or sort of police-informed risk techniques that have been used up until now. I also want to make a second point, which is, and I'll go through each of these in a bit of detail, is that there's new players in this risk game. Um, so the technologists are a variety of different people here, and I'll talk a bit more about that. Sometimes they're concerned citizens. Sometimes they're computer scientists or software engineers, or they're hackers, but they're usually not people trained in social science um, who are engaged in this. And they are also very important in making public data, our data public, but they're also very important in starting companies and data brokerages and mining and storing data from all kinds of places <coughs> to create new technologies that they can then sell back to a number of different agencies in the name of safety and efficiency. And so I also argue generally, and this might be more relevant for people in the criminological or legal area, that what we see is a new kind of penal politics. So we see the production of usable knowledge that enables what I call a networked social action or information activism that uses big data analytics and they're doing it to mount sort of powerful data-driven critiques about racialized social justice and they're also being used to contest um, police court and practices of redefining risk. So what do I mean by that? So I go back to the earlier point where I say there's a really robust literature on surveillance or surveillance society. There's some great work done in Citizen Lab and a number of places looking at issues around surveillance and the way in which we track people electronically or through data. But here I'm also interested in how can we actually use that data in the interest of resisting um, some of those practices. So there's two sides to this. It's not just that surveillance and surveillance is problematic in some ways, helpful in other ways, but it's how are we enabling a new form of information activism? And it'll become a little apparent about how we get to this. Um, but one of the things that's interesting that you might want to know about my history and coming to this question is I've spent 25 years looking at risk assessments and critiquing them for their gender and race-based um, outputs and saying that they're discriminatory. So basically saying if you use a generic risk assessment tool that's produced on a group of white men, um, offenders, then you apply that tool to women or to racialized populations in Canada, in particular indigenous populations, you will get racially biased or gender biased outcomes. Um, and there's been a very robust literature that has talked about that for over 20 years in corrections literature, in criminology, and in law. But interestingly, it's this data, um, big data techniques, is allowing for that critique to penetrate in ways that it's never ever penetrated before. And it's allowing it to be public and it's also being used by protesters to resist a number of the technologies that have been used, um, which could be in the scope of racialized policing or various forms of discriminatory practices around incarceration and other kinds of techniques. So what I've argued in other articles in criminology that have nothing to do with big data but lots to do about risk is that if we're really interested in dynamic risk which is what something that the criminal justice system is, interested in this thing called criminogenic risk and dynamic risk. They're interested in saying, well, what are those things that can change that will then reduce the propensity of reoffending or make us safer or um, allow us to be more effective in our treatment of people? 
And by using the big data techniques, I'm arguing that you can move from the individual to the structure of society, to jurisdictions, to areas. So big data can also produce an alternative narrative about risk, and it can allow us to look at chromogenic structures or chromogenic policies, not just chromogenic people, because we can look at propensities in jurisdictions and in regions. And so I'll get you to hold that, because I'll come back to it. And the fifth and final thing where I want to sort of stop for conversation at the end is how do big data and AI machine learning understanding fairness and equity relate to sort of ethics and legal decision making? Um, can we actually use these technologies? Time we can talk a little bit about you know the introduction of fair representation models and different ways of doing this. But I think it's a, an interesting question out there because. On one hand, I'm very critical of the way in which risk and risk technologies have produced certain forms of racialized and gendered surveillances and really target marginalized populations and police some things over other things. I can also see the potential within big data to be able to resist that critique and to mount evidence-based critiques of that, um, sort of from the social justice or intellectual information activism spaces. But I also can see potentials within AI where we can eradicate some of those um, injustices that we see. And I think that it's just moving so fast that every time I pick an example or try to update slides with examples, there's new ones and they're out of date. So I just kind of stick with my old ones because I kind of like them and I know them. Um, so that's where I'm going and those are the big arguments. So if you think a little bit here about, so how is it um, that actuarial risk or what I would call is psychologically informed risk. So saying actuarial is, is really not that good of a definition and in the article and in other talks I've actually changed this to say psychologically informed risk assessments because effectively they're both algorithmic and they're both actuarial, they're just different scales. So the big data risk versus what I would call psychological risk. So both of these technologies are predictive. They're both capable of prediction but the scale is different with big data. The big data has a much bigger scale of its ability um, to in integrate information, use information to make those predictions. They're both doing statistical analysis of aggregate populations. Um, the difference is really important here, and it will start to get more fine as we go down, is that in psychologically informed tools or sociologically informed tools, the scale is limited. So the data is collected and it's vetted um, with an attentiveness to research and methodology. So if you're making a psychologically informed risk assessment instrument to make predictions about recidivism, you're working with the epistemological and ontological canons of psychology or criminology. So you've actually got theories about learned behavior. You've got theories about choice, about cognitive behavioral theory or others that you're using to inform you. So you've used that, you've used a methodological and conceptually grounded social science techniques to collect that data, to clean that data, to test that data, to look at what's predictive, what's valid, what's reliable, and all of those kinds of things that you would do in your statistical analysis within that discipline. And it's also designed for a very specific purpose. Um, now, it is black box because information comes in on tools like a compass or an LSI, um, so you'll ask all kinds of questions like where did you live, what was the first time you were arrested, what do you engage in leisure activities, do you have debt, do you argue with partners, um, have you had 
um, trauma in your history, do you have mental illness in your history, so all of this kind of information gets collected, it moves into a scale kind of model, it gets weighted differentially, and at the end you get ranked high, medium, low risk. That's sort of the basic gist of how that all works. However, it will be argued um, that it is empirically defensible, reliable, valid, and clean, um, so that it's predicting what it says it's going to predict. Now, some of us have spent 20 years arguing that's not true, but nonetheless, in principle, this is what a psychologically based risk instrument will do. When you move into big data, you have the same problems, but it looks very different. And so when we start using big data techniques to do the things we used to use the psychological techniques for, or we marry these things or integrate them, what you see within big data is that you have excessive volumes of cases, like more than you can even imagine of cases, and it's infinitely expandable. So it's not like me doing a research study with a certain amount of cases. This is like infinite. Like you can just keep adding and adding and adding to it. And the data gets collected from a multiplicity of sources. And importantly, there's very few methodological considerations. So as I'll show in some of the techniques that I've looked at, people are just pulling data. And data brokerage companies do this. You pull data from lots of different places, but you're not in a social science canon of how you do it. Um, and you're not limited methodologically um, or theoretically in terms of the type of data that you're collecting in the same way that you would be in a more disciplinary bound method of producing risk assessment. And you also find that within big data, there's the capacities to assemble and disassemble data. So you can take it apart, you can put it back together, you can use bits for this, you can use bits for that, you can toss this bit out and bring that bit back in. So there's a lot of technical ability to assemble and disassemble it for a wide range of purposes. Um, that being said, it's also value-laden, and it's also variable, and it's also black-boxed. So if you've ever spent time listening to people who talk about the technologies like PredPool or any of the other algorithms that they're using to make predictions about sentencing or anything else, and you say, how does it work? Like, a lot of people say, well, it's proprietary. I can't tell you exactly how it works. It's copyrighted, which is also true of risk assessment scales. So you never quite know how it's doing the work that it's doing. So information comes in, and then there's an output, and there's something happening in the middle. But we never really know what that is in the middle. And this is particularly concerning for a number of people um, in terms of the quality of that data. And the simplest way to think about it is this idea of junk in, junk out. Um, and if, so if you have dirty data, it's going in, and if it's not data that you know that is correlated, like if it's umbrellas to predict rain, um, you don't know whether you've got spurious relationships in there, you just don't know what it is. And in some ways people say, well, it doesn't matter because it predicts, right? So if you look at something like a, an algorithm about when is an event gonna occur in a particular neighborhood that might be marginalized, you might be looking at calls to 911, visits to drugstore, and noise complaints mm -hmm. in a building. That might be a proxy for domestic violence. It might be a proxy for some other form of violence that is occurring. And you might don't necessarily come from a theory of saying, well, the visits to the, the drugstore with the purchase of these kinds of items that are escalating in a particular neighborhood indicates anything in particular. But when you take that data and you put it with other data, um, it allows you to sort of make some good guesses in some ways. Um, and importantly, these are all predictions. They're not certainty. They're all probabilities. Um, 
which is a whole other discussion because their criminal justice systems have lots of trouble. The average person has a lot of trouble with what probability is. Probability is not certainty, um, but these are still probabilities. Okay, so if I just move from there. Um, so when I talk about, oh, I've got past my slides, I'm moving along too. Um, so th that's sort of the first point, is that when we start to embrace big data technologies, and we start to see companies advertising the ability to sell products back to criminal justice system like Predpol or like the laptops that are occurring within or the um, tablets in correctional systems or any other kinds of background checking techniques and the sophistication of those kinds of companies, we're starting to alter um, the way we think about risk. So we're moving from ways that we might have thought about it within a particular canon into ways of thinking about it through the assemblage of information that doesn't really come from any kind of root theory or epistemological or ontological understanding of who's engaged in crime, who's likely to reoffend, or where crime might occur. So that means, and that moves me to that second point. So not only conceptually are we shifting what we mean when we say we're predicting risk, um, we're also changing the players. And so you have new players in the risk game. Um, and new players that are creating public knowledge um, about this. So where before we would have had social scientists um, who would have been engaged in these kinds of things, we now see that we have a whole set of individuals who get engaged in these activities um, that have lots of expertise in statistics, computer science, software engineering, sometimes just hacking, um, and techies, but they're not individuals who are sociologists, criminologists, psychologists, or anything like that. So you have this kind of new expert. And the new expert comes onto the scene with knowledge about crime and criminal processing that's being produced and that is actually quite marketable. Um, and interestingly enough, in, in some canons and the more sort of dismal you know, areas of sociology in the place, they'll say it's the death of social science. Um, so we don't need social scientists anymore because we can do that work more efficiently if we're looking at the predictum of, of prediction of social patterns. Um, that quickly gets refuted by social scientists who say, you know, we are still very important and we actually need to do slow science. We know there is an interesting kind of side debate on those issues, but what I think is interesting and important here is that some of the examples that I'll give you um, in a minute are ones that don't come from people who are particularly engaged in criminology, but rather concerned citizens who happen to be software engineers, um, from journalists who go to concerned citizens and say, well, we were told this couldn't happen, and the software engineer goes, oh, well, that's simple, you just have to do this. And then they do that, and then something becomes possible, um, which is a very different way of engaging um, with information and managing in the criminal justice system. Um, so let's just move for a second to how does this get done? Um, so, in addition to talking about the new players, the question is, what are they doing? Um, and so, what they're doing is they're engaged, um, or data scientists are getting employed in a number of different places to organize massive amounts of unstructured data. And in the big data narratives, they often refer to this sort of volume and the speed and the capacities of computer-assisted technologies but less attention is actually being given to the very more mundane tasks of what I would call, or what they call, and there might be other words for it now, but what is typically called the munging and the wrangling. 
which is loosely referred to as the processes involved in producing the data sets. So we're very interested in what are people doing with them, but we don't spend enough time thinking about how are they made and what is happening when we're making these kinds of data sets. And this is also what, for those of you who are researchers, also probably more commonly know are familiar with the idea of cleaning, matching, aggregating, and converting data from a raw format into some kind of compatible or usable format. Um, so this is, in a sense, the process of training the statistical models. Um, and it's time consuming and it's complex, but it requires a whole bunch of judgments, interpretations, and generally some knowledge of the questions that the data needs to answer. Um, and what's interesting to me is that these are all activities that are occurring underneath the umbrella of big data. Um, and they're activities that are being done with the use of criminal justice data, um, but they're being done by software developers who are basically producing the data sets um, about things, let's say, ra about race and crime. Um, they're making data available and showing the processes they're using for data uh, munging and wrangling, but there's not a lot of people that are interested in them. But for those who are interested in them, one of the very cool things that is done in this area is that they believe very much in open source and putting out there for the public the very detailed steps that they use to build the statistical models. So when I started to look at sort of the ProPublica work um, when they critiqued Compass, it was fascinating because for the first time in 20 years of studying risk, I actually saw on a computer screen data that I've been doing freedom of information requests for for years and I could never get. And the type of data as a social scientist, which is a bit of a gold mine where you could go into this, and it's partly because of a principle underneath it for some of the people who are, that are more left and social justice concerned in using this data, is to use open source. To say, hey, did I get it right? Here's how I coded this. Here's the data that I used. Here's the steps I used to build a statistical model. Never gonna see that in a psychological risk assessment tool that's implemented into the courts. Parapsychopathy checklist is not going to let you see this data set. Neither is the LSI or the Compass or a lot of other things like that. So you've got these new players in there and they're producing new knowledge. But not only is it they're producing these new technologies, but they're also opening up data for public access and for public use and making it quite transparent. Um, and this information is often not provided by jurisdictions who produce the risk algorithms, even when independent researchers are asking for them. And they're certainly not provided by commercial risk tool developers who protect their data through copyright and other kinds of nefarious techniques. So the public and transparent data production suggests more public accountability and also a potential for responsiveness to value-laden empirical questions um, when we're thinking about risk. So many of the computer and data scientists and software engineers who are using these processes interestingly though, are unfamiliar with the normative politics and nuances of criminal justice data. So this kind of cuts both ways. So on one hand, they're putting it up there, and they're saying, look at what we did, here's how we did it. But they actually don't get um, the nuances of the data. And a really good example of this has been in some contexts where I've seen people talk about, we can build better algorithms, we just need to know, yes, no, we just need to put the right information into it and then program it on how to make the decision. I'm like, yeah, but the data you put in is already a problem. So if you put in policing data, that data is already a proxy for race. You put in criminal history, it's a proxy for race. You put in previous conviction or pre, um, 
pretrial custody. It can be a proxy for race. It can also be a proxy for gender, a proxy for marginalization, lack of social stability, or housing because of the criteria for what gets you into pretrial custody. It can also be a proxy for poverty because you don't have access to legal counsel. And we know if you don't have access to legal counsel, certain things are um, consequential, that you're more likely to plead guilty, you're more likely to be in pretrial custody. More likely to be in pretrial custody, you're more likely to be sentenced to custody. So when you just look at the raw database, if you don't know that information, um, you're picking up data, um, quite incidentally, that is quite dirty and quite value-laden. And you're not using it in the same way as you would if you came from that disciplinary kind of basis of methodological, theoretical, and empirical understanding of what it is that you're doing. So it's not a matter of one is better or worse, but it's how do these things ever come together? And what are the potentials when they do come together? Um, and this is where the questions of fairness kind of hang out there um, in the ether to say, can we do that? Can we do it in 20 years, 10 years? But can law adapt to those kinds of things? Um, so what I'll say for now, though, is with most of these tools, the unfamiliarity raises lots of conceptual and methodological issues that social science researchers need to debate. Um, nonetheless, the big data trend and the propagation of usable data and open source code provides us an insight um, into some really interesting patterns of systemic and overt discrimination that were previously really difficult to conceptualize and demonstrate qualitatively um, or quantitatively, and where we tended to do it on a case-by-case -case basis, but we couldn't quantify it in aggregates in the way that we're now capable of doing. Um, okay, so I'll just move on then. Um, so this is where I talk about the idea of the new tech-savvy players in the risk game. Um, and here, what you see is that criminal justice organizations, lawyers, and advocates, social advocates are kind of cluing into this, and they did some time ago, so it's not new for many of these people now. Um, but what we see now is that there's a number of different ways in which this gets used. So I talked to you a little bit already about PredPol and the police predictive policing algorithms and what they're doing and how they're picking up the data. But I don't want to spend as much time on them because I don't actually think they're that interesting. And I think everybody likes to think about surveillance and I kind of think that it's an interesting thing to look at, but more interesting is what is it that advocates and individuals engage in debates about the ethics of data usage, people who are concerned about data harm um, and the access and storage of commercial uses of the data. What are those people doing um, with this data and what do they have to say about it? And what I find that they're doing is that they're starting to rethink potentialities for critique. They're trying to think of other kinds of tools and technologies that we can do. So in a sense, the lesser discussed players in this risk game are the critically minded data analysts who are starting to independently study questions that have preoccupied people like me and other sociolegal scholars and punishment society scholars, quite frankly, for decades, such as how do algorithmically generated scores, um, or commonly referred to as risk instruments, impact individuals' freedoms or produce biases? Um, so one interesting example of this is a fellow by the name of Surumati, who's a data and society fellow and an artist, interestingly, and an engineering. So there's nothing legal or chronological in any of this, but artist and engineering. And he and his colleagues got interested in critical data studies, and they started to focus on the social and cultural issues um, 
that are associated with what they call data-centric technologies. So they got concerned about the use of risk assessments and the reliance on it um, by in Congress and Congress passing through the U.S. Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act um, that would make the obtaining of a risk assessment scores as a required um, piece of information to be used in the context of sentencing. So what they did is they ended up going and getting the risk scores assigned to 7,000 different people in Boulder County, Florida in 2013 and 14 to check to see how many of them were charged with new crimes over the next two years. They used the exact same benchmarks as the producers of the algorithm and they found that the score remarkably was unreliable. They said, and they called it unremarkably, unremarkably, or remarkably unreliable in forecasting violent crime. So it's interesting because a tool had been used. A court and a, a jurisdiction had said, you will use this when you're making sentencing decisions. They legislate it. These guys pick it up, grab 7,000 cases, put it in, test it, and they say, well, this is useless. It doesn't work. Um, now you can imagine the people who use it every day have a very different opinion of this, but it's interesting that they have the capacity to do that and that they engaged in doing that. And what they also were able to show is that there were significant racial disparities. Um, and that's what many scholars and jurists have feared about these things, such as Justice Holder and others, that errors in prediction um, are there, and those errors in prediction are heavily racialized. Um, and what they were able to disaggregate is not only are they racialized, but they're racialized differently for black and white defendants and in very different ways. Um, and this is uh, the group that started to use um, compass. So they started to see, for example, that when you look at the scores that were generated through the compass tool, and this is one of the famous examples through ProPublica brought forward, is that they falsely flag, flag back black defendants as future criminals and wrongly labeled them that way twice at the twice as rate as white defendants. Um, so if you're black, you're twice as likely to be seen as recidivist, and you seem to have a higher risk. Whereas it said with white defendants are mislabeled as low risk more often than black defendants. And they also started to test suppositions of type errors um, in producing the difference. And they found that the disparity in distinct types of error by race remained. Um, so they were able to show something that, quite frankly, I've been working on for 20 years and not persuasively have shown um, to the extent that these guys were able to do it almost instantly. Now, the slides, or what they then produced, basically confirmed what many criminologists and criminological scholars have argued for a long time, but never really had the access to the data to do it or the capacity on the scale to do this. Um, and they consistently showed um, that what had been argued sort of in a more critical social <coughs> justice way had relevance and has given pause for people to start to think about it. And there's countless examples of this. Like it's really fascinating if you go into this article, it, you can just, and back to the point about the open source, you can just click and get right into the pre-sentence reports for all of these people. Uh, you can get right into the actual tools for the people. Like, we won't even get into questions around privacy because there's a whole realm there that we can talk about. Should this information be public or not? But it's showing and took these examples and saying, well, here's low risk, here's high risk. What do you think? And there are countless examples like this. Now, certainly the Compass providers were not 
particularly happy about that. So North Point, um, who's the company who managed it, disagreed with the findings. But interestingly, in their statements they put out in response to this was, and I quote, to construct a risk score that doesn't include items that can be correlated with race and poverty, joblessness, and social marginalization, um, if you admit those things from your risk assessment, your accuracy goes down. So the question is, like, is that something we should be concerned about? Should we be thinking about that? This opened up a huge debate on these issues. And there's a lot of dismissal of it, partly because it isn't within the methodological um, canons in which the tools were built, but it does raise some interesting concerns. And it's interesting to me that people who were not necessarily criminal justice engaged in the academy produce this type of information. So what this does is it's also facilitating a sharing of knowledge um, for individuals, but it is also um, pointing out to us some of the things that can happen in terms of data harms. And we have in the past had a lot of things that I would call data harms, is that we've used data produced from actuarial algorithms, albeit psychologically informed for the most part, but sometimes not even psychologically informed, but jurisdictionally produced, and we haven't really been able to uncover them or think about them um, in the same way that we now have the capacity to think about them. And this is just an example of what happens when you start clicking through these databases. So you can start to see right up there are all the scoring guides. Like these are things that 20 years ago I tried to get through Freedom of Information and all kinds of requests, and I came back and said, sorry, you don't have a psychology course. And I'm like, well, no, I actually don't, but I have a PhD, does that kind of count? And he's like, no. So then some judge actually gave them to me because he was annoyed. Um, and that was useful because then I started to be able to see what was in there and how did you produce the algorithm. These guys just popped it all up on screen um, very quickly. And then not only they pop it up, but they start popping it in in ways that you can go down and see how they're all used. And then when you get in there and you start like opening a black box, these are the questions you see. Um, so defendants get asked things like, was one of your parents ever sent to jail or prison? How many of your friends are taking drugs illegally? How often do you get in fights in school? Um, then they ask sort of value-laden questions like, does a hungry person have the right to steal? Um, if people make you angry or you lose your temper, I can be dangerous. I have kids, I have two girls. Presumably I can be problematic um, if harm is you know, threatened on that. So many of us, like when you start looking at these questions, I could give you a whole talk on what they are, um, you start to see yourself in them. And you also start to see how, when you look at populations of who's in custody, for example, in the United States, those first three questions are heavily racialized. And in the Canadian context, which is not where they've worked, you will see the correlations with indigeneity to be significant um, in terms of over-incarceration of Indigenous people. So what else do they do? So Compass people know, but here's another example of this fellow, um, Coloroso, where he, again, um, was not necessarily interested in law or courts, but a journalist. And he wanted to get certain types of information from the courts. 
Um, and he was told that those records didn't exist or he couldn't get the information that he was being asked for because they were all stored in different circuit court databases. So you could never look at things across Virginia's courts. You could only look at them individually in the courts. So then his friend or somebody, a colleague, a software engineer said, well, yeah, you can do that. That's not a problem. Here's an algorithm. Here's a way to do it. Here's some software. Put it all together, and now you have a searchable database. And you have now got companies um, who can search legal decisions um, and precedents and start to create predictions of likelihood of outcomes. More typically not in criminal cases, but employment and tax law, you see people building um, techniques to be able to do this quite effectively. Now the final example that I want to show you before I leave lots of time for us to kind of talk about this is a group that I find absolutely fascinating in the US. And we were at a data science workshop with them. And this is We the Protesters and Million Hoodies and a number of others. And this is the site, if you Google them, We the Protesters. And I'll just give you in a nutshell what they did. So in a nutshell, what they did is they teamed up with a number of computer scientists and software engineers. And in doing so, they started to look at the question of lethal shootings of blacks in the US by police. And they had this campaign zero, in the sense that you want zero shootings of blacks in the US. So they started to produce a data set. They started to pick up data from each jurisdiction on deaths, on shootings, on use of forces, and population data, and demographic data. They put it all together in the way that you can using big data techniques. And they started to look at police violence by the numbers. And they started to really dispel in lots of different ways um, some of the popular conceptions about who was being shot and the circumstances under which they were being shot. And they showed very distinctly racialized patterns. And you can go to their, their site, We the Protesters, and you can look at this. And it's got even better over the last two years with a lot more detailed information. And they looked at why, and they asked questions, and you can see the sort of politics that they come from by the way they asked the question about why are police killing people. Um, they also looked at the fact that people were unarmed um, in the context. They looked at the relationship between black and brown and white and police shootings, and they saw the predictable outcomes that you will see over representation of black and brown people. But then, interestingly enough, it wasn't just about showing that. They are, will use techniques of the munging and wrangling. They'll talk about how they did it, but the code is there, the techniques are there. They produced a police violence data set, and they started to be able to rate every single state um, in terms of the probability of lethal violence by the police if you're racialized. And then they started to say, well, what are the excuses people give to delegitimate this data? And they started running the murder rate within particular jurisdictions. They said, no, sorry, that doesn't explain it. And then they went, interestingly enough, one step further to that. And they said, how do we fix the problem? So what does correlate with it? How do we think about this? Where do we go from here? Um, and so they have all these interesting solutions. Um, and I sort of started to drive down in one, which maybe has something to do with a bit of my day job that relates to collective bargaining. But I started to see that very quickly, um, what they end up showing is the union contract of a particular jurisdiction has a strong relationship to police shootings in the state. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. Who would have ever thought of that? Um, you certainly wouldn't get there from that form of data. And then they also have this kind of updated site, which I said is more sophisticated, is that how do you end the broken windows policing? Like, what are the alternatives? 
how do you start to limit the use of force? What are the alternatives? And they drive down by jurisdiction, by state, um, and right into the contracts in particular regions. And they talk about fair place union contracts. And the, the better the union contracts are, the less likely that you have the shootings. Um, so it's an interesting place where you can also find that people can start to come together toward a solution. And it's a possibility enabled by big data. So this is back to the point where it's not all bad stuff, um, but it has these kinds of potentialities. And so here, this is where I'd say that it has the potential for information activism, has the ability to look at what I would call structural risk. So if we're interested in dynamic risk or chromogenic risk, which is what can we change or what can we do differently, we have the capacity to do that in some places now. But I say that with full acknowledgement that a lot of the data used to do it is still dirty. Um, but it's an interesting potentiality and possibility. So we now have things where you can get network social activism, you can get information activism, so you can argue back with data. You don't necessarily have to be diffused with data, which has always been a very common pattern in the criminal justice system as we want evidence-based decision making. And the question typically is, what evidence? What about the qualitative evidence? Or do you want that on the effects of segregation, or do you just want the longitudinal studies that show predictive um, propensities for mental illness as a consequence of solitary confinement or control? Um, they're both evidence, but only certain evidence kind of makes it into the scope. And this allows you to sort of level the playing field a little bit in terms of evidence and how we talk about evidence and data harms and structural risks. So a relevance here is not whether the forms of algorithms are accurate, neutral, reliable, or valid, but instead how is algorithmic risk used as evidence? Um, and as an evidence-based criminal justice culture is there, um, we don't often pause to think about the epistic origins or the juridical impact of risk evidence. Um, and now we have different ways of, of thinking about this. So I think that big data has that capacity to it. Um, and this is just a little bit of a summary of the things that I've been saying, which is the new players are shifting that risk game and they're shaping this kind of new evidence-based risk narrative. We're seeing the rise of information activism and it's going faster than you can speak. Um, if you follow Data and Society and ProPublica, and there's, I don't know if there's anyone in here um, who knows that, it, there's a fellow, is that Tom here? No, yeah. Um, oh yeah, no, not that guy. Um, but there's some journalists who follow this who can get you to Human Rights Con and other places where there's all kinds of really cool stuff happening in this area. So I think it's really interesting to think about it and what does it mean for as we move forward? What does it mean for how we think about ethics around big data and AI and law when our tendency is always to kind of move over to the negative capacities of these technologies without really thinking about how they can neutralize data harms and produce different kinds of information? Um, and that being said, I'll say it's a cautionary tale because even though advocacy organizations use this information and they produce alternative forms of information, it's not social science, it's not disciplinary based, it's still dirty data. Um, there are no formal research methodologies that are being used here and you can take, depending on where you come from, that's gonna be more of a concern or less of a concern for you, but as a social scientist, it is a bit of a concern for me. And so the question remains, how do you marry this up? How do you have, develop a language and a space where you can have interdisciplinary conversations and talk about these things? How can you mindfully produce technologies 
um, that minimize data harms and perhaps um, further social opportunities. So here's just some final thoughts here, um, which I won't uh, belabor too much, but I like the bottom one, which there's a bunch of unresolved questions here. I don't have answers, some of you might. Um, but what does it mean about data ownership? What does it mean for like what I walk around with on here, which is regrettably a lot about my life, um, including photos, things I put in clouds, where they get stored, how I cross borders, um, and being somebody who's stopped at every single border crossing, uh, probably because I have a stolen passport on my file. What does that mean? Because there's extra information collected about me. Where does that go? Who stores it? Who has access to it? Um, who thinks about it? And how are they using it to sort of govern my life and regulate my life in ways that I don't see? So it's not just the ads I'm getting on the internet, but there could be a lot of other forms of spatial regulation and um, temporal regulation, other things that I just don't see. So. You know, maybe open source is a game changer, I don't know. Uh, maybe this doesn't be fair, I don't know, but I've talked long enough, so I'll stop there. <laughs>